0: Hello and welcome to episode 25 of series 4 of the Engaging Internal Comms podcast. This is the show for employee engagers and internal communicators who like to keep up to date with all that is new in our profession. My name's Craig Smith from The Big Picture People. Well, after today, we've got two more episodes left for this uh, this series of the Engaging Internal Comms podcast, Series 4. Uh, on the 5th of December, I have an interview with Casey Wahl. Casey is from Attuned, and he's going to be telling us all about how we can better understand employee motivations, and in particular, intrinsic motivation, the things that not necessarily our organisation does for us, but the, the motivation that we get from the work that we do itself. So that's a, a, an interview that, as I say, we've got going out on the 5th of December. And then on the 19th of December, we have an interview with Helen Neal. Helen is from HN Communications, and Helen is going to be telling us all about how we can better engage our employees using sustainability that is going on within our business. So whether it's environmental or or sustainability from a broader perspective, how, we, how important that is to our employees and how we as internal communicators and employee engagers need to understand that and be able to relate to our employees' expectations. So that's the that's going to take us up to the end of Series 4. And then going into Series 5, I'm just going to wet your appetite with a few really interesting uh, interviews that we've got lined up for the new year and for the new series. Uh, we're going to be talking to a retired spy. We're going to be talking to someone who worked in counterintelligence for a number of years and is now applying the lessons from that to the world of leadership and communication. So really interesting conversation. That's coming up in the, uh, in the first couple of months of next year in the in the new season. We've also going to be speaking to someone who's going to be telling us all about the importance of social purpose and how they're using social purpose within their organisation. Uh, really, really fascinating interview. We're going to be finding about about how you can make your internal comms effective when you only have a team of one or a small team of internal communicators. I'm sure that resonates with a lot of you. And even if you have a big team, I know a lot of internal communicators have to bootstrap a lot. They have to use uh, their wit and their influence to get things done. They don't always have the the resources that some of our other colleagues are fortunate enough to have. And we're also going to be looking at workplace culture and how we can create a positive workplace culture. So we've got some fantastic interviews already lined up for the beginning of the new year. Some very diverse topics as we like to try and do. So hopefully you're going to be looking forward to that and we're going to follow straight on uh, into the new year. Our first episode actually goes out on the 2nd of January but I'll tell you more about that in the final two episodes that we've got coming up in the next few weeks so that's enough of me let's move into this episode's interview <laughs> In this episode, we're going to visit a topic that we've looked at before, and that's psychological safety. Lots of organisations are aware of psychological safety, are talking about psychological safety at the moment, but not necessarily sure what it is or how to develop or build a culture of psychological safety. So we're going to be looking at it from a number of different angles, and we're going to be talking to an expert in the field who built up his career initially in the mergers and acquisitions industry, and he built up there a knowledge of organisations culture and what worked and what didn't when it came to successfully integrating organizations together. So our interviewee is going to share with us a number of aspects when it comes to psychological safety, and three aspects in particular. That is how that we give our employees a voice within the organization, how that they feel that they can grow, and how that we embrace diversity and inclusion and belonging to to ensure that they can bring their full selves to work, work, their full self to work. Um, and we've got some very interesting metrics that we're going to be discovering later on in terms of the return on investment for building a psychological safety within your organisation. And that includes increasing des- discretionary effort, including performance and productivity, inc- increasing the amount of problem solving and innovation within the organisation and increasing retention and reducing turnover. So we're going to look at really, our, we're going to look at the, the, the actual tangible benefits of having a culture of psychological safety safety within your organization so uh, that's what we're going to be looking at and at the end of the uh, episode as well our guest will share with you some links to some of the the, the uh, elements that he talks about some of the the data that he talks about in the interview so if you're looking for uh, some sources for that data as well if you look in the show notes at the end of the at the in, in, the, in the interview that the, the, the uh, version of the interview on our website at engaging ic.com you'll find a link there to uh, a blog that the uh, the guest has written which will give you all of the information and data that he refers to in this interview. So I hope you find this enlighten- enlightening and useful. My guest today is Maurice Ducoing. Morris acts as a guide for companies large and small using his 15 years of experience in human capital, business strategy, branding, talent management, and organizational transformation. He helps these businesses to realize the power of their potential of their executives, their managers, and their employees. His business, Decoying Human Capital, is a consultancy specializing in a variety of human capital management solutions grounded in psychological safety, including employee experience, change management, and communications. So, hello, Morris. How are you? I'm great, Craig. Thank you very much. I'm really excited to be here. Um, I'm doing well. (laughs) fantastic yeah it's good great to speak to you so uh just for our listeners whereabouts in the world are you where are you positioned at the moment uh for those listening i'm
1: actually a new yorker that's living in los angeles i've been here almost 10 years at this point but you know, once a New Yorker, always a New Yorker. So I just I say that because people will sort of get that sense from me if they know New Yorkers.
0: <laughs> uh, fantastic. Yes, definitely. That's definitely. So, yeah, you're really you, you've moved a diagonal across the across the United States then from uh, from home to, to well to where your new home is. So uh, weather. And, and, uh, and what's the weather like where you are? Those Brits always like to talk about the weather. What's the, what's the weather doing where you are at the moment? There's a
1: very peculiar weather pattern for Brits um, here. It's called the sun. <laughs> and uh, I seem to be getting solar power at, at every moment. So it's actually very nice. Uh, we're about a nice 70 degrees. Um, that's pretty much what it is all the time. But uh, it's we had a kind of strange summer. So we're now heading into the, what I hope is going to be a more stable period.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We're having a bit of a heat wave here at the moment, which is, uh, it, it's quite unusual for us. So What's I was down bad? in London yesterday and it was absolutely for, you know, it's oh, putting it into Fahrenheit about 90 Fahrenheit. So it was oh very, very God. warm. Yeah. Yeah. Quite unpleasant, but yeah, uh, not, not the London wasn't unpleasant, but just the weather was. So yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> excellent. So, Morris, tell us a little bit about your story, because I, I know when we had our initial conversation, it was an interesting uh, route to where you are now, and and uh, and 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 some so not not a conventional route to, to doing what you're doing now. So, uh, yeah, tell the listeners a little bit about about your backstory, please. Definitely not conventional, and I'll, I'll just add one item.
1: You'd mentioned um, employee experience, change management, psychological safety. I'll just throw inclusion in there as well, and I think that that'll become really obvious as I, we start talking a little bit more diversity yeah. equity inclusion and accessibility are big in my thinking <laughs> even yeah. if it's not necessarily always in doing but um as you pointed out i had kind of an unorthodox uh growth into human capital consulting i actually started as a middle school teacher i did the new york city teaching fellows program and i taught middle school got my master's through the program and. uh education curriculum design taught in the bronx crazy time <laughs> um, that's a whole other <laughs> podcast quite frankly but um i did that for a number of years and then i actually somehow moved over and was uh, got a job in deloitte consulting and that's where really i grew up i'd say in the human capital consulting space um so i was there out of their new york practice in human capital And I focused a lot in change management. My first project was the Thomson Reuters integration. (laughs) You've heard of that one before. Yeah. Um, And uh, I basically focused in learning strategy uh, as well as change management. But then I left in about 2014 and I started working in private equity. And I think it's really funny because, you know, when you you work in employee experience, when you work in change management, all these things that are people-centric you don't necessarily, you know, the, the reputations of private equity sometimes perceive themselves uh, is a mm. right way of saying it. And um, I spent a lot of time really working um, there in trying to build that up. I said I yeah. wouldn't be involved in it unless I built that up and was really able to focus on that. So I actually spent a lot of time there building their end-to-end uh, human capital best practices. That's from hiring all the way to separations. So all yeah. the different things that you do in between there. I also worked on about a hundred integrations. So they were merging. It's a major element of the private equity um, thesis to kind of merge companies together and get inorganic growth. Uh, and then actually I left and I spent the last three years working as an operator actually in a software company uh, where I really focused on a, a number of things, but. Really overall helping them to scale, go from yeah. 150 to 200 employees to about a thousand, uh, and about 15 or 17 integrations during that time, which is a two and a half year period is pretty wild. Um, but I guess the theme of all of my work is focusing on, you know, employing the right approach, I guess, to help employees feel right, feel safe, feel appreciated and, uh, feel developed I think those are those are really important yeah and maybe a second element which is a laboratory yeah uh, because of a lot of the companies that I've worked with at least in the last six seven eight years have been b2b software companies of a certain kind mission critical all of that I've really sort of worked as in a laboratory where I've been able to sort of test the same practices with very similar companies and sort of control and that's given me a different perspective on uh how these best practices work, and
0: how the people element changes those dynamics every day. Okay, so yeah, so your your background in in is in sort of private equity and mergers and acquisitions, and it sounds like you've been involved in some fairly substantial mergers and acquisitions there. And, and as you say, a key part of that is is integrating. You know, the two organizations together, whether one is more dark, you know, one is one is the acqu- acqu- acquirer or and one is the one that's being merged. Uh, there's an integration process on that. I know when we spoke initially, we we talked about um you know you talked about it and i think it resonated with me is this there's sort of inclination to undervalue the the importance of culture and the people that we are you know i use this term loosely because it sounds it sounds wrong but we're we're acquiring you know these human resources these people when, when when one of these companies are being bought and they're obviously you know human beings with with their own personalities and 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 personal aspirations but there's often a, a that that gets ignored at the expense of all the kind of stuff that's more tangible is that is that your experience and why do you think if so why do you think organizations tend to not sort of uh, you know kind of realize the, the the importance of that when it comes to, to to uh valuing or doing their due diligence when they're acquiring a, another company
1: uh, well, you know, in fairness to the private equity companies that have talked to me and worked with me, at least initially, they mm-hmm. did, they did say they were looking for culture. They were seeing that this was a differentiator for them, and that's you know sort of what they brought me in for. Um, although I will say that it was funny during my interview, uh, they asked, "What do you mm-hmm. think of private equity?" and I said, "I don't." <laughs> um, for the exact reason that you just brought up, which is, yeah. you know, it, it, this is you know oil and water here. But mm. I will say that most private equity firms are are getting smart on this area. And they understand that the people element is not only a differentiator, but there's so many levers there you have to pull that make mergers successful, that make the actual operations of the company successful, that if you don't pay attention to that, or you just try and ram things through, or you just uh, make the experience really poor, then no one's going to want to stay there. Mm. So uh, you know, I think when I when I first got there, a lot of things were about just recruiting. Everyone understood recruiting, right? Mm. Maybe they understood development, and they definitely understood you had to lay people off, right? Those were like <laughs> the existent uh, compliance elements that that we had. Um, changing recruiting into an experiential thing. <laughs> um, and, uh, inclusive experience was, was some of the things that I added there. And they were open to that. I also did strange things like brought in change champion networks. Um, yeah, they had very much focused on a lot of the Patrick Lencioni initiated work. And mm. I, you know, I love Patrick Lencioni. I think that his work in the field was, was exemplary. And he, and he really got a lot of those types of people to think twice about culture i think he's really the main reason responsible yeah. and as a result of that um people really allowed others of us to come in afterwards and, and take it to the next level because he yeah. was very you know fable like he told stories about it he had good examples to to go by but they were story like but uh when we came in i i really focused on what were the metrics what were the measures how do you actually measure these and I really landed on, on two key things. One, a set of four measures. Employee experience, performance, productivity, innovation and problem-solving, and then retention, I think, were how we scientifically got them to understand the levers to pull. And mm. then psychological safety. Uh, mm. I, I was uh, designing and delivering uh, a rising executive year annual class and so uh, that was part of the class. There, it has now become the major core element of my practice. It mm. infuses everything. It may be a new concept to a lot of people, but it's actually as old as human beings are, <laughs> if you're really yeah. looking into it. So, yeah. um, I, I just uh, th- it gave me those entryways that I'm really grateful for
0: yeah well that that's a really nice segue into to what i wanted to talk to you about next because that's that kind of um the whole per- you know kind of title of the interview and what we're going to be talking about is psychological safety and and we've covered this before on the show and it always intrigues me and and i i think there are many and multiple and and valid uh, definitions of, of psychological safety but i'm interested in in your definition of psychological safety morris and then and then we can maybe go on to talk about um you know go into that in more detail and the roi of, of psychological safety we can start off with a Definition of of what what it actually means and how and what your definition of psychological safety is, please, Morris.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I would say that there's a general definition, and I'll like do a permutation of that. So uh, typically, psychological safety is a team or group of people who feel safe, Mm. take interpersonal risks to make mistakes, and that it's the furtherance of the goals of the group. It's really important that. They're actually doing this not just to make mistakes because they're lazy, but because they're actually trying to produce better, right? They're trying to mm. perform better. Um, and the reason that they can do that is because they're not distracted by fear. Um, mm. So that's that's the definition that I think people can relate to. That's the Edmondson definition. Um, Simon Sinek added that uh, psychological safety is very influenced by people managers. I extent uh, Google did that as well. Um, mm. Daniel Coyle really focused on something I think that this, these audiences will be interested in the interpersonal communications cues and dynamics. That's mm. what he focused on in terms of psychological safety. He didn't actually call it that, called it mm. trust, but and mm. Simon does the same thing, but they're really talking about psychological safety. Um uh, Radek and Hull talk about a safety model, Helbig and Norman really relate their practices to the what do I do day to day. And so Mm. I think there's a lot of different people who add their own element. What I would add is three pieces. Mm. We are delivering a social need. People are able to perform better because three of their social needs are being met. The Mm. need to have a voice, which is to speak and speak up. It's the need to have uh, growth, which is a focus on understanding failure and mistakes as being a logical, fundamental process and not something to be ashamed of, as well Mm. as the curiosity to seek out new opportunities. And then the one that I really don't think anyone is talking about, uh, or at least not enough people are making the connection, it's to that diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility piece, which is Mm. what I'll call the full self for our... Um, for our sake. And that really focuses on two elements, strengths, and that's skill strengths, like we think about, but also character strengths, like virtues, Mm. like those are distinct for each each person. And then their intersectional identity, being Mm. a black woman from a place or being a gay Latino male, all of these things, all of these different elements, change your experience and your contributions. And so I think it's really important to acknowledge that as part of being safe because if those aren't acknowledged if those aren't valued i don't really feel safe so yeah uh, yeah that's what i would add
0: yeah, no, that's great. And and I think it's good. It's good. And, you know, I like your definition and, and you know, I I guess some of the definitions I've heard are, well, I think they're all very similar and they overlap and there's, there's a lot of commonality and you gave us some kind of textbook. Yeah. And I think it's that ability to be able to lean into, you know, what is a very uncertain future that we, many, you know, many organizations, if not all face at the moment, uh, with some sense of I'm going to be okay because you know someone someone's got my back and I can experiment and and make mistakes and potentially fail as long as my goal is to you know to further myself or to further the organization and 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 the genuinely genuine honest mistakes it's when you live in that sort of sense of um you know you're going to get kind of jumped on as soon as you step over any lines even if by you know you're doing it because you're trying to further the organization and 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 the way you serve your your, your customers or your end users so yeah yeah that's um yeah so let's let's maybe go through those in, in a little bit more detailing because i think you, you've got a nice you know those three three things you talked about voice growth and the whole DEI and, and the sense of belonging and, and being you bringing your full self to work Let, can we go through them in, in turn morris so starting sure. with voice let's maybe go into that a little bit more detail perhaps Absolutely, and and let me know also what more
1: detail you think would be good here, because yeah. I could yeah, talk all day and we want to edit it as well. But <laughs> yeah, I, I'd yeah, say yeah. I I mentioned speak and speak up, right? Um, yeah. that really uh, officially and structurally, uh, I I t- tried to take this language actually from um, Professor Clark, who actually focused on the terms contribution and challenge. Mm. So if you think mm. about it, it's people contributing new ideas, people contributing additive ideas, because I do believe that that is a distinctive skill and a distinctive experience for somebody to add mm. ideas onto someone else, to actually listen to them and say, hey, I hear you. And uh, I think that is a distinctive experience to something original. And then yeah. um, I think there's the, also the challenge piece. And this is the scary one, right? Because you're in an environment where you're, one, challenging processes, so you're speaking up you know, that doesn't work, or this is actually worse than it was before, things like that. Mm. Then there's Mm. the speaking up element, which is to say, there's been some injustice. We are paying women less in this organization. We are doing X, even when it doesn't directly impact you, as Mm. well as when it does. Uh, That kind of speaking up is very dangerous for people, or at least they perceive it as that way. And so Mm. when I think about voice, These are very real experiences that people have, and whenever there's an obstacle, an inhibition, that means it's not quite as safe. Um, And as a result, that inhibition is going to be on their mind, and it's going to take them away. It's going to push them away from the the appropriate behavior about speaking ideas. What Mm. is my idea that is going to completely revolutionize the way we do hoteling, like Airbnb? That Mm. those ideas were. laughed out of their particular rooms the first time, right? Mm-hmm. But not everyone who's going to come up with ideas is going to be strong enough to push it forward on their own. And mm-hmm. how many ideas die in the vine because they're not in the environment to really support them? And so that's why voice is essential for the organization and essential for um, the individual
0: experience and the team Yeah. Experience. Yeah. Um, it's interesting it's in touch and it just just to, to explore that a little bit more with you yeah, Mars. Sure. Because it's an, it's an no it's a really interesting one and in that um it, it, I I totally agree with you you know you've been able to to you know that that whole creativity piece and being able to uh you know kind of challenge and ask questions and uh, I guess some people listening will think well actually that's all well and good a lot. But some of my people actually, you know, they use their voice to sometimes derail or, or, or sidetrack or, or potentially, um, uh, you know, sabotage I, uh, other people's ideas and, and where we're so democratic and everybody has so much of a voice that actually it, it goes full circle and actually we never get anything done because all we used to do is debate. How do organize, because I, because I think that's a, you know, I, I totally agree that's a really important part of psychological safety. How do how do organizations strike that balance without tipping into feeling unsafe or helping people feel or making people unsafe? Because, um, the actually the the use of voice is used as a sort of it's 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 almost constraining other people's voices. Do you, do you see what I mean? Because I, I see that quite a lot. What in the, some of the work that I do is that that actually there's a fear of voice because it's actually seen that well, if we give everybody a voice, um, it's going to mean we never get anything done because we're just talking all the time. Uh, have you got a way of maybe reconciling that or or, or kind of getting that balance right?
1: Yeah, I, I, it's a great question and a great problem that we're always tackling every day, right? Because yeah. everyone approaches the psychological safety problem with different characters, right? Mm. And not every organization has the person who, if you let them, they will talk until everyone's dead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They'll just keep yeah. going on and on. They have no sense of that. And mm. that to me, I usually handle through coaching, right? Yeah. We, we, we have to target individuals who are, you know, they turn their liberty into license, Right? They've mm-hmm. now abused what that is. But what I would say is, it's hard to say that two things are happening in that c- circumstance. One, mm-hmm. it's hard to say that just because there are a few people who do that, that we should not have people being able to voice their opinions. All the good mm-hmm. that that comes because of the few, I think that may be an extreme response as well. So we mm-hmm. do have to find balance. But the second I'd say is, It may be difficult for us to actually recognize when someone is just constantly talking and they are bringing back good faith, very important elements because either leadership or the rest of the organization is not quite there yet. Mm. Uh, There are a lot of practices that we engage in um, organizationally that probably still have bias and still have prejudice. Just think about a referral program, for example, Mm -hmm. the referral program by definition is a bias program because it actually wants you to get people who are just like you. Right. Mm -hmm. And that advantages people who are already incumbent. And if people speak up about it and nothing happens, is that speaking up about it? people go, oh, come on, not this again, the referral program. It's an essential component or the you know, resume, <laughs> the yeah. name on the resume. Does that really? Yes, it does. These have influence. And so if people are constantly speaking up in those areas, I think organizations have a difficult time telling the difference between somebody who's saying things to say them and trying to add value and honestly trying to achieve justice.
0: Mm, yeah, that's a great answer. No, I mean, I, I agree with you. I've, I've done some good, good work with some really good developmental facilitators. Who, who, you know, that some when people are contributing, it's always useful to get them if they've got that level of self awareness and emotional intelligence themselves to reflect on, you know, what what is your mo- what is your motivation behind the point that you're making? If it's purely self interest or to kind of further your own ego or status. Then is that is that the right th- is the, is is that the right way to use your voice? But if it's actually in furtherance of the organisation and something that we all collectively care about, then that's the kind of you know the kind of construct that the, and and that and and people who can you know use questioning really well, not in a way that you kind of you know saying people feel scared then to say anything but actually just reflect on what they're saying and why they're saying it and then maybe alter the way what they're going to say in order to get the, the outcome that they're looking for i think that can be you know a really great way to shape that into away from just we want to kind of talk this out or or uh or, or, or kind of find a way of just oh, um yeah. like, filling the room with words yeah i yeah. definitely agree with that I,
1: uh, yeah even 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 ego can sometimes be right like the broken clock two times a <laughs> Two times yeah. a day, right? It yeah, yeah. Still yeah, directionally yeah. be the right thing, even if it's yeah. coming from a different intent.
0: Yes, absolutely. Okay, Maurice. So if we can move on to the second one, then so uh, the the growth. And uh, will happen, right? It's it's the interesting stuff to really
1: uh, to really break into. Absolutely, yeah. So it's growth communication makes sense. So yeah, growth. absolutely, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. This is actually a really hard one because people oversimplify it. Hmm. Uh, and I, I think actually, to the detriment of a lot of our leaders, a lot of executives that I worked with, when I say things like "we have to be willing to accept mistakes, we have to be willing to accept failure," immediately it's oh, okay. But one, we can't fail in front of the client. Hmm. Or two, you know, what do you mean by mistakes? What if somebody's just making these yeah, stupid mistakes? They don't really think about it, and and you know, as a result, it costs the organization a lot of money. Yeah. Of course, of course we wanna prevent those. But in each of those instances, I would say that you still need to completely change your frame or Mm. you're just gonna make people fearful about something they can't change. Mm. So even if you go around telling everybody you can't make mistakes in front of a client, you know the surefire way of getting them to make a mistake in front of a client? Tell them don't make a mistake in front of the client. They're gonna get (laughs) nervous and they're gonna bungle it, right? What you do is you say, you got this, you can make it happen and and actually coach and support them. And that's how you get there. And mm. the mistake and failure element, uh, Amy Edmondson actually just wrote a new book on it, but basically it's three different pieces. One, it's you know the uh, preventable failure. Okay. That's the failure that everybody knows and hates, <laughs> which is a yeah. mistake that I made because of carelessness or any number of things. Well, Think about it for just a moment. And I I just wrote a blog post on something like this uh, just the other day. But Mm. basically, think about it as the mistake, instead of saying, oh, how do we find this person in blame or in fault? Instead of having that frame, why not say, why did the mistake happen in the first place? Mm. Yes, maybe there was a degree of carelessness. That's fine. And we can address that. But Mm. why was that person making this mistake in the first place? Why have we not automated it? Why was it somebody this junior making the mistake? All right. Because the other person Mm. just didn't want to, even though they were more senior and would have caught this. There's any number of process improvements that you can also make that have nothing to do with blame and Mm. seeking out to improve process and not crucify people is a major shift that people need to make here Mm. in order to create a safe environment. Yes, people deserve. To you know, reprisal <laughs> for yeah. making a major mistake, but that's not the you don't have to shame them into oblivion, right? That mm-hmm. doesn't have to be. And the, the language I hear is, oh, wow, you made that one mistake, and eight months later we're still talking about it in your performance review.
0: Yeah. And yeah.
1: what's that about? Right. So yeah. I'd say that. And then there's the other two, where there's you know, the unpreventable failure, the the systematic failure. Like let's say a hurricane hits and we weren't able to deliver our fruit. that's not your fault, but what we should be thinking about there is how do we mitigate against that? So how do we have a hurricane policy, right? Like what do we do in these instances and prepare better? And then there's sort of the final piece, which is the actual scientific mistakes, the trial and error mistakes. How do we encourage people to pursue, fail fast and actually feel comfortable doing that? Because that's where all innovation comes from. And we need people to be doing that. So we can't choke it off by not being able to tell the difference between those three and punishing the wrong ones. Um, Or even though you really shouldn't be punishing any of them at all, you should put Mm. them in context. But there's the second piece to that as well, which is just wanting to pursue growth. And this is another challenge for people. Sure, I can tell my manager, you know, I really want to learn from you. I want more feedback and, um, you know, affirming feedback that tells me the things that I'm doing right and constructive feedback, the things that I need to change. That's great. We all know that, and that's part of the job. But what about coaching? We say we want people to do coaching, but when you ask somebody where you see yourself in five years, do you accept the answer, not here? A lot of managers are not equipped for that, and you have to be. You have to provide an environment where you're not only going to allow them to have a dream, but you're Mm -hmm. going to help them have a dream. And it's that kind of practice saying, you know what? I know this isn't part of your job, but let's take 5% of it and let you shadow this other department. Let's see whether you like it. That action alone that doesn't have to happen, most companies don't structurally require that, really goes a long way to send a signal to employees, this is a place where you can grow even if we don't necessarily see it in the direct place that you're in. And that is- radical
0: in many ways. Yeah. I was in a meeting yesterday and someone, um, gave, gave me a quote. I think it's attributed to Richard Branson, which is, you know, train people like you want them to leave, but treat them like you want them to stay. And I, th- and I think, you know, th- that for me, I've never worked anywhere that is, um, successfully, you know, kind of handcuffed people to the organization by not developing them. Mm-hmm. Um, and trying to, you know, cause they will just they will either leave straight away, or they will just find another way to develop themselves. So they can leave, and you know, no thanks to you, uh, to the organization. So yeah, definitely, it's um, it, it's a it's a definitely a, a, a they're key. not performing well. They're not exactly even performing better. You, yeah, you, you
1: can't expect them to perform better and not teach them how to do that. So they're, yeah, they're either going to be growing or stagnating organizational impact so yeah yeah gotta make that decision somewhere
0: absolutely so move on to the third one then because i know this is an area you're really passionate about morris and i want to make sure we 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 cover this so the 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 one that you said i think in your in your when you you just introduced these three areas which is probably the one that often gets overlooked uh, from a psychological safety perspective so dei and bringing my whole self to work so just explain and explain that a little bit more please
1: Uh, absolutely so i I try and break that into two different areas that both have to do with the uniqueness of the individual. The, the I think the, su- the sweet spot of what people really need in organizations is they want to be, have membership in a group or a team. That evolutionarily has been prioritized by our brains as making us more safe. I mean, mm. Back in the day, it was because we were, we we're safety in numbers against the lions and whatever mm. else, right? But today it's, That social need is what we need emotionally and in other capacities. And so being having membership in a group, but not being, you know, a face in the crowd, but being valued. I I see you and I value what you individually contribute is a Mm. real need that people have. Otherwise, they don't have autonomy. They don't have mastery over the work that they do. They just become faceless and Mm. nobody wants that. And so uh, we've uh, sort of identified Two areas, um, with some sub areas there. But I, the first one I call is strengths. I, I think we understand strengths, right? There, most people think about strengths if they've heard it from Gallup or you know that Strengths Finder. It's what are the strengths that I contribute to the organization? Lentioni recently came with working geniuses. A lot of organizations have like what are how what are your strengths in an organization? Maybe it's specifically looking at the job description and saying I'm great at these four bullets and I'm not great at these two. Whatever it is. You can identify your strengths because strengths by definition from a skill set perspective is what do you do really well that also gives you energy as opposed to something you do really well that you hate doing. Yeah. (laughs) That's not a strength. It does not Mm. give you energy. It's not not something you want to be doing. Um, So that's one area. But then there's also character. Uh, There are actually 24 particular virtues or character traits that are inherent to people. And just like with skills, you can actually find which character traits, like it could be honesty, it could be courage, it could be thoughtfulness, whatever these are. um, There are 24 specific ones that are pretty much identified globally. And you can use that to determine, okay, what are your skill sets and what are your uh, character traits? That's pretty unique to you and how you're going to approach the work and the experiences you have with people. To add to that, there's a third part that adds sort of that experiential piece, which is what I'll call your intersectional identity. And I, I, read, I referenced it earlier, but you can't tell me that if a, a person who is, if we have two men, but one is straight and one is gay, one is black and one is Latino, one is, you know, uh, disi- what has a disability. Um, You know, the other one is a caregiver. That these aren't different experiences for those people. They don't add a nuance around them. And most importantly, when a woman walks in a room, when a person of color or a disadvantaged group walks in the room, and they don't see anyone who looks like them, you can't tell me they don't feel safe. Mm. (laughs) You know, Mm. they're they're not safe in that environment, and they're thinking about that at least a good enough percentage to distract. I mean, some research shows that until the room looks about 40% diverse is when people start feeling, you know, safe. Yeah. <laughs> really yeah. themselves. And that's a lot, but you can do that on a team. You may not be able to easily do that in a company. So th- something to think about there. How do you really identify these differences? and value them and respect them in a way that people feel comfortable being vulnerable and open about who they are, as opposed to the old adage. There should be a boundary. I keep my friends at home and I keep my, you know, colleagues at work. Are you kidding? I have tons of friends at work, right? I have people who I spend half of my life with. If they're not friends, what am I doing? Right? And you, we have to allow for that experience. Obviously not maybe be completely informal in those circumstances, but that doesn't mean we can't have real meaningful relationships with those people.
0: And, and that does that link in with the belonging element as well, or is that a separate a separate piece?
1: You know, a lot of organizations are defining belonging as sort of that diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility, which really is that that identity piece. Um, I actually think belonging is a, is it almost synonymous to psychological safety in many ways and the reason for that is because i don't think i belong if i don't have a voice but people for whatever reason think that you know i can talk all day long about being a latino gay male yeah <laughs> but, but yeah. they don't want to hear my actual thoughts around the workplace <laughs> i don't feel like i'm safe in that environment at all i'm a token in that circumstance right yeah. so it belonging to me is your membership in the group is not in jeopardy or not in question and your because your contributions are valued because your uniqueness is valued and because you have that voice and growth pursuits that's what i would call belonging
0: yeah Excellent. Excellent. So j- j- that, thank you. Very, that, that's a really good, good summary. And I like that. And, 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 uh, and I think you know, we'll put that into the show notes, those three different elements that you, you've you just, you've just talked us through there, Maurice. I just want to move on because of just conscious of time. Yeah. To, 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 to I guess it kind of it embodies everything we've been talking about, which is, 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 and, and if it's not apparent now, then, then, you know, let, let's spell it out. What, what's the data tell us or, or what does the, what is the evidence tell us that about the business case? For, you know, creating an environment where people feel psychologically safe, so where they have a voice, where they feel that they can grow, that they 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 feel as though they belong, and that they any they're, you know their di- diversity, whatever di- diversity they represent is is welcomed, and 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 that they see other people around them who are like them, and 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 they feel part of that 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 family of in the organization. What 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 is the What is the business case if it's not already obvious to people, but, you know, for those people who need to know the numbers or need to know the kind of, you know, the real, the real sort of metrics around it.
1: The data is extremely clear. And yet you'd be surprised how many people like talk or mention psychological safety and they sort of have that face as if they're, you know, how the word woke Has been misappropriated now Mm. they basically look at me with that woke (laughs) like (laughs) this is just a woke word this is a bougie word a million dollar consulting word whatever else and i'm like no this is a real experience with real data to back it and if you remember what we were sort of finding out at the sort of tail end of uh, some of the private equity work that i was doing we were uncovering four key metrics and i believe very much that if you are trying to understand and quantify psychological safety, you first have to go to these four metrics because they're the ones that I really think organizationally have the most impact. First is employee engagement or employee experience and different organizations are at different levels there. But ultimately engagement and experience is the degree to which you care about the organization and are motivated by the organization. And it very particularly unlocks discretionary effort, Mm. which means I am more likely to go above and beyond to finish this deliverable or to work on, you know, a couple hours on the weekend or to make sure that this email is rewritten so that it's not uh, garbage to the, (laughs) even though I only Mm. had 10 minutes, I took an extra 10 minutes to make sure that the client got what they really needed well and not created more problems. Um, Mm -hmm. That discretionary effort happens only to engaged people, emotionally engaged people, people who are engaged um, at a sort of safety belonging heart level with the organization. And it shows. And what we see there is engagement in psychologically safe environments, environments where people say they are safe, can increase by up to 76%. And when that happens, you're 76 percent more likely to unlock discretionary value, even if that's one hour per employee. That could mean thousands of hours in in quantifiable value that's been added. Mm. Um, mm. Second is performance and productivity, which is distinct from what I just said. Mm-hmm. Um, in that, it's actually this has actually been shown to increase by 56 percent, and because similar. People who care about their environment are also care to improve the environment, and and they care about improving the environment because they actually will learn new things and actually apply the training. Psychologically safe environment, and I I was shocked by the data, are something like 30 to 40% more likely to apply training that they learned um, at their job. I don't know what the rest of the people are doing in those trainings, but perhaps they're, they're like, ah, I, I'm, I'm too, I'm too lazy to bother, or quite frankly, I'm overwhelmed and I, I just can't get there. Whereas these individuals are like, no, I need to do this because I want to make my products better, um, and they ha- make that connection. And so, fifty-six percent improvement in productivity and performance—that's a biggie. Um, the one that's all the rage, not only in private equity, but I think in software and honestly in any company that's trying to survive in the long term with how things change so rapidly is problem solving and innovation. If you are not coming up with better ideas, someone else is. And this a psychologically safe environment, the research clearly shows that you can get up to 49% more innovation or more contributions because that's really what it allows, more creative contributions, more creation, more voiced uh, opinions, um, more uh, strategic thinking in these areas from a wider range of employees in these groups because they feel safe that they won't have reprisal, they won't be made fun of. Because remember, a lot of these aren't, you're going to be fired. A lot of these are, I'll have a social impact. People will laugh at me. And that's enough to keep people from saying the million dollar idea. And this really helps you by about half. Um, Also by half is the fourth one, which is retention. (laughs) Because strangely enough, people who are truly engaged and motivated really uh, have better performance and who contribute to more success at the organization stay longer. (laughs) And so it's up to 50% improvement in that area um, or 50% less likely to leave if you look at it the other way. And I think that saves astronomical sums. I just captured this in an article recently where you can see all the data being punched, but just for the sake of listener, all of those metrics are real. They're based on something. They're based on logic. They're based on research. And I just can't believe that people would not be persuaded to at least take a look
0: yeah I, I can't think of any organization that wouldn't want more discretionary effort, more productivity and performance more problem solving and innovation and retention so uh, yeah absolutely and to be able to quantify that I think is really really important and 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 I think more importantly the connection between you know what you've talked about your definition of psychological safety and those metrics is for me is really clear and and you know you can see in an organization that doesn't have psychological safety just intuitively how it will suppress. Uh, or 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 give you a you know particularly suppressing retention in yeah. double negative, but it's going to increase turnover, which is what not what you want. So uh, so yeah, absolutely. Um, so so Morris, just before we we, we close out, uh, you know we we've got an audience here of of, of internal communicators, OD people, people working in an employee engagement, HR, learning and development, and I think all of what you've talked about today is it will hopefully, I'm sure it will resonate with them. Just, just thinking about that audience, and it's still quite a broad, broad audience. Any, anything else in terms of you know, particularly maybe in the, in terms of the communications aspects. What, what, what internal communications professionals and and people who have a strong link into comms can do to, you know, not just communicate because it's not the sort of thing you communicate. You got to, you got to walk the talk. Uh, but, but, what, what, how can they help? their leaders, their organization, their culture to, to really embrace psychological safety.
1: I think people need to realize that all the work that they just put into emotional intelligence, you know, what people Mm. thought was the fad before psychological safety has still meaning. Mm. Psychological safety is just emotional intelligence 3.0. If you really Mm. want to think about it, because let me tell you, if you cannot self-regulate and you start screaming at everybody, that is not a safe environment. Mm, <laughs> Nobody yeah. is going to feel that that is safe, right? So it's really important that you do. Uh, you are able to be self-aware, you are able to self-regulate and, uh, and, uh, and approach those practices. In particular, and I referenced him earlier, Daniel Coyle does a lot of work in this space around the interpersonal uh, communication uh, pieces. He, he focuses one on belonging cues. When you have a conversation with one other person, there are three elements that must sustain. Three elements that you have to be watchful for in order to create a safe environment. Uh, that first is that um, there is energy in the exchange. Like you and I are talking back and forth. It's not like you're talking and then I'm you know looking over here. Uh, there's a pause for five hours and then maybe I come back and look at you because I'm working on something else. No, there's energy. There's back and forth. Um, second, that there's individualization. I'm not just giving you generic garbage. Uh, you know, that can be applied to any person. It could, you know, apply to Yeltsin or, or Putin or something like that. Mm, no, mm. it applies to you. Things like, oh, yes, uh, I remember from our conversation last week, or, you know, you've been struggling with this a lot, right? Mm, Th- mm. Those sorts of things individualize it. And then third, and I think we all mess this up, we get really busy and we do not signal that we want the conversation to sustain after it ends. Instead, we end it and we go, oh, shoot, I have to go right now. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm late. Bye. <laughs> and then it's yeah. like th- this feeling of like, did I do something wrong? Do I smell? What's going <laughs> on here? And it, it actually lets doubt enter. That's just the way human beings are, even confident people. it'll yeah. Even if I spend yeah. a couple of seconds on it, it's like, what just happened here? Um, and, and Coyle says, these three belonging cues are essential for interpersonal communication and essential for safety. Yeah. Um, so that's definitely one. Um, the, the second I really think is, and you hear this a lot in DEI, but not really outside of that is the concept of microaggressions and microaffirmations. Microaggressions are, you know, I said earlier, people yell at each other. Well, no, not necessarily. What usually happens is people will just interrupt you. People will, you'll say something and they'll ignore everything that you just said and then say something else and just sort of cut off the conversation they'll stop you and just be like okay i think we've heard enough of that or i just can't understand what you're saying you know things like that these are all microaggressions they're some of them border on being aggressions aggressions but they they are what's referred to as microaggressions and they absolutely destroy psychological safety versus the other side is microaffirmations it's saying things like you know, I I haven't heard from, you know, John yet. I haven't heard from Joan yet. I'd like to hear from you uh, because I think you have a lot to say. Or I really appreciated when you said that. Or wait, hold on, please don't interrupt her. I really want to hear what she has to say. These are micro affirmations. These are the type of statements made strategically in group communications that can really add tremendous value to that safety experience because it shows that you respect people even when someone else has engaged in microaggressions it shows that when it mattered you stood up for them and that at the end is a major component i could go on forever but those are two that i would definitely no, that's
0: no that's that that's excellent no f- well, thank you thank you maurice so look that that's been absolutely fantastic um let's just finish off by just saying where how people can get in touch with you so we've got your i've got your linkedin profile um you sent me another couple of links do you want to just tell me what what are the links that you've got we've got there and then i'll sign post them in the show notes if anyone uh, uh, is re- looking at this on our website you'll find the show notes attached to the to the uh, to the this episode on engaging com. but what what are the other two things or two or three things that you've sent through morris please I sent three more things. One is just the
1: DuCoin Human Capital, where a lot of my firm does the work on LinkedIn. So just that link so that people can find DuCoin Human Capital. But you can also go to uh, my actual website, DuCoinHCM.com. That actually has a lot of the work that I'm, I'm referencing right now, at least in terms of the language. And that's where people can really go to engage with me as well. Uh, To see, okay, you know, what are the opportunities here? How can I work? And it doesn't have to be big projects either. (laughs) It could just be a conversation and see where that goes. Uh, But my website is also a good place. It actually just relaunched today. So um, that's really great timing and and had nothing to do with anything, but just that's where we land. Coincidence is coincidence, maybe. <laughs> um, and then the last one is just an article, as the article I alluded to before on psychological safety and the ROI. If people are interested in really crunching the numbers, they can go and see that there. And it's a long article because I had to crunch the numbers. <laughs> the <laughs> logic is there, and um, you know, I I just think transparency is key here.
0: Yeah. No, that's fantastic, and thank you for your generosity. There. That's it's great to, uh, 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 as you know, anyone who listens to podcasts, It's always frustrating because you, you kind of hear it and you think, where did I, where did I pick that up from? Or can I? You're trying to remember something when you're at the gym or in the car, and, <laughs> and being able to go back to it. So yeah, if you if you if you're listening and you want to go back to some of that data that uh, Morris mentioned, have a look on uh, engagingic.com and look at the links at the bottom there, and you'll find that. So you can go to that and you can actually uh, get that data and and have a look at it. For yourself, so um, so look, Morris. That's been absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much. That's really really great construct around the the conversation there i appreciate you uh, uh i know we had our, our conversation a few weeks ago when we talked about what we, we were going to talk about but you've you've uh you've really coherently put that to cross because i think it's an area as i say that um lots of people are talking about but i, I get a sense that, that 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 not everybody fully understands or, or gets it and and i think you've really really kind of given us a really nice um and a simple but 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 very very in-depth way of of thinking about psychological safety and, and and how we can practically use it in our organizations. So, um, so thank you so much. Awesome. That's well. That's wonderful. Thank you for having me. Um, as you can see, I'm, I'm
1: pretty passionate about this subject, maybe to a fault, but I appreciate the the thoughtful questions that uh, led us to really be able to talk about what I think will help people. So, uh, wonderful. I'm excited
0: thank you morris take care and uh, all the best with your, your new website uh, well your your relaunch website and uh, uh and and uh I'll, I'll be having a look at that and i'm sure our listeners will as well so uh, you take care and uh wishing you all the best for the rest of this year great thank you so much Thanks thank you We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Engaging Internal Comms podcast. If you've got any ideas for episodes you'd like us to cover in future, you can email us at info at thebigpicturepeople.co.uk or you can use the feedback form at engagingic.com. If you're not already subscribed to the show via your podcast platform, please do so. And if you could leave a review for us, that would be absolutely fantastic. We have links to other episodes at engagingic.com. All of our previous episodes are available there. And if you're Interested in our visual communication services our big pictures our learning maps our explainer videos and also our live graphic recording please get in touch with us again at info at thebigpicturepeople.co.uk thank you